Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your co-host, Marissa Filio. Each month, we will be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use challenges, resources to assist individuals with an SUD and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. This month, we're giving you not one, but two episodes, and this one is with two of our very own, Joanna Dolan and Tim Sobers. We have framed this discussion around their experiences navigating recovery as members of the LGBTQIA plus community. Stay tuned for stories from the field, and without further ado, let's get talking. Well, listeners, I'm here today with Joanna from the COE, we've already met, and Tim Sobers on our team. We have not had the privilege to have on this, but we do today. And then also Marissa, who you've recently met through our introductions and our conclusions on these episodes. And we'll just take some time now to let everyone introduce themselves. Joanna, do you want to start? Sure. Hey, super glad to be here. Uh, My name is Joanna Dolan. I am on the steering committee at the PRCOE. And uh, my thing is uh, Core Team 1 expanding into uh, non-traditional settings. Awesome. Thank you. Tim. Uh, Hi, everyone. My name is Tim Summers. I work on Core Team 3 with the Center of Excellence, which is focused on workforce development. Um, I am a certified peer specialist, and I am from Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks, Tim. Marissa? Hello, my name is Marissa. It's nice to finally be on a podcast. I am Shannon's co-host, and I'm excited to get into today's conversation. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. So just to start things off, uh, Joanna and Tim, do you want to talk a little bit? You both can field this, or if you want to just one or the other. Um, Why is this work important to you? I think this is Tim. I think for me, in terms of I'm going to interpret this as why is like peer work important to me. Um, And for me, I think it's really important because it offers an almost like an alternative to an alternative, Uh, right? It's an alternative to any sort of medical model or clinical options. It's an alternative to some community-based programs. Um, It's an alternative to kind of anything. Um, What I really love about peer support is that it's so individualized and that everyone gets to create their own understanding of what it means to have a life that has meaning and value to them, whether or not that includes continuing to use substances at any level or choosing to discontinue them entirely or choosing to participate in taking medication for what could be considered mental health challenges to finding ways to live with things that might be considered psychosis, like hearing visions, I'm sorry, hearing voices and seeing visions and experiencing altered states. Peer support supports any of those pathways, any of those options, if you're doing it properly. And so for me, what's really exciting is that that is such a new way, a forward-thinking way of approaching how we understand human experiences, but it's really important to me to continue supporting that sort of uh, lens at uh, which we approach engaging with each other, rather than approaching from this, this idea that you have a disease or there's something wrong that needs to be corrected. Uh, we really get to create the space for ourselves while also staying connected to the community at large, right? One of the things that's really important to me in doing peer work is that it's not just about how do I get well as an individual, but I also really value this idea that how do I do that in a way that supports the community in which I live, the people who are around me, um, and how do I support people in healing in such a way that they also feel like they can connect to contribute to a community. Thank you, Tim. Really appreciate that. 
Joanna, did you? I don't have anything as eloquent as what Tim has. Um, I, uh, I, I do this work because other people have been doing this work before I got here and it made it possible for me to, 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 um, to be in recovery. And, and I want to make sure that I keep paying it forward. And I'm very much aware that, um, the disease of addiction has a lot of different moving parts. Um, and that there is this, the, the coaching and the peer work, like that is something that I'm uniquely qualified to do. I appreciate both of your answers. I love Joanna, the, the concept of paying it forward and how you own that you're uniquely qualified to do that. And, and Tim, you spoke to it too, and that it's, you know, the line I love, and maybe it's trite, but maybe it's trite because it's true, is that experience equals expertise. And for peers, they are very uniquely qualified to do it. No one else could do it, do the work the way they do it. So speaking of experiences, um, Joanna and Tim, what, what does recovery mean to you? Oh, well, for me, uh, recovery is, it means a lot of different things, right? Because it's the foundation that I build my life on. I'm definitely recovery positive and everything that I have in my life is because I made that choice to do something different, no matter how easy it is or how difficult it is. This is the, this is the, piece that my life revolves around, which is a good thing for me because it means that my life is continuously evolving and that as a human being, I'm able to do the same. Nice. Tim? I would say for me, it's it's not, I wouldn't go as far as to say that it's meaningless as much as it doesn't have enough value in my life to have really any sort of impact. Um, the language that I choose to use for myself is just, you know, I want to go sort of back to that idea of it's a little trite, but just to be like, I'm just a person. Um, and so I'm someone who used to use substances in a way that caused a lot of harm to me. Now I'm able to engage in substances in a way that doesn't cause harm to me. Um, I used to really struggle with what could be considered mental health challenges, and now I don't. Um, and so for a lot of people that might be like, what you might be hearing is that I think that I've recovered but I really don't even feel like there was anything to recover from to begin with as much as I was navigating human emotions, the human experience, human distress that everybody goes through. And so I've reached a point where for me, I'm just like, that's just a piece of my life that happened and now it's over. And there are other parts of my life that cause distress and they happen and then they're over. And I would rather just identify as a person who has the skills to navigate ups and downs of life than to put it into the box of being a person who's in recovery and looking at it as like, I wasn't in recovery and that was one version of my life and now I am in recovery and it's a different version of my life. For me, it's all part of the same thing. And so it's just, I now have better skills to navigate emotional distress than I did before. And if other people want to consider that being in recovery, they're welcome to, I don't necessarily look at it that way. I like that perspective. Cause to me, it sounds again, not to devalue anybody's um, individual experience, but your perspective see, speaks so much to like integrated self, right? That we talk about in behavioral health and mental health spaces of just accepting and loving your whole self, including all of your experiences, not just the good pieces or the pieces that are easy to fit in a box, that sort of thing. 
So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Marissa, I don't mean to leave you out. Do you have anything to add? Not right now. I, like you just said, I really appreciate hearing both perspectives. And I think there's a lot of people out there that can really side or, you know, relate to either one of these experiences. And I think it's very important that we talk about them, especially when we talk about pathways, because there's no one specific pathway for anyone. So not right now. I appreciate both opinions. Yeah. Marissa, you brought up a good point, like relating that is the heart and soul of ex like affirming multiple pathways of recovery or not recovery, just being the whole self in that we are all individuals just navigating humanness. All right. So I don't know who wants to go first, but I don't mean to follow such a pattern, but uh, Tim or Joanna, if you want to jump into your journey as a member of the LGBTQIA plus community. Listeners can't see, but Joanna's pointing over at Tim. <laughs> He's pointing down on my screen, but on my screen, I'm a blower. So I'm like, well, who she pointing to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can definitely go for it. Um, so I think it's a really interesting experience. And I know we've talked about this, you know, as we were prepping for this podcast, really wanting to be able to feel comfortable going into some spaces that we maybe don't hear that much about. Um, and so I, I wanted to share that for me, as a queer person navigating uh, recovery-oriented spaces, it was really, really tricky. And I don't really engage with any sort of recovery spaces anymore. And I, I think that's something that uh, for a lot of people navigating recovery is, is a little contentious uh, that I, I'm not really connected to the recovery community in any way. Um, but a lot of that is because I never really felt safe. Um, you know, when I first started experiencing uh, severe distress that was related to using substances and navigating mental health challenges i did go down the path of wanting to explore abstinence first because it just really felt like this was what was expected of me it didn't really feel like that was what i really wanted as much as that's what i was being told we needed to do um, and that was in clinical treatment settings um, and so i did go participate in uh 12-step programming for about six months i went consistently um, you know, they tell you to do, or what I was being told was to do like 90 meetings in 90 days to get a sponsor as soon as possible to do all of those. And so I did. Um, one of the things that I always prided myself in when I was navigating, uh, you know, trying to find wellness was that nobody was ever going to be able to say that I didn't do what I was told I was supposed to do, whether it was from my therapist or treatment, I would do, I would do it all. I was like, you're not going to get me. Um, I need to prove that it doesn't help. <laughs> um, so I did that's everything. Very that's very scientific method of you, Tim. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I'm going to show you that this is not going to work for me. Um, uh, I, I, you know, spoiler alert, it ended up working. But <laughs> before we got there, um, I went to 12 step for about six months and I really struggled because the 12 step meetings in my area were a little bit more old school. It sounds like from having spoken to some other people. Um, and so there was this idea of like, you're coming in, you need to get a sponsor immediately. Um, as someone who was queer, I wanted to work with a woman, a female sponsor, because that just felt safer to me. I didn't always feel safe working with uh, cisgender straight men um, who are mm -hmm. oftentimes physically bigger than me. For those of you guys who don't know, I'm only 5'6". I'm a very small Latino man. And so it was imposing and intimidating for me to be around these other men who are bigger than me, who I had historically not had such great experiences with. And so I wanted to work with a woman. And the 12 step meetings that I went to wouldn't let me do that. They kept saying that that could lead to, you know, these different uh, romantic relationships, that that wasn't safe. 
And as a gay man, I was like, well, that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Um, and so it was frustrating to have that experience. And then the 12 step meetings that I went to as well were really focused in on religion. There was a real underlying current of Catholicism. There was a lot of praying going on. And as someone who has been really, really deeply harmed by organized religion, to have to be back in that space uh, was really harmful to me and really damaging. And so I did end up uh, leaving 12-step and going to Smart Recovery. Um, and I just connected with Smart Recovery a little bit better. I do a little bit better things that are more concrete uh, than I do with things that are like spiritual. Um, and so because that was a bit uh, based a little bit more and in, in, they refer to it as like the science of addiction, it clicked with me a little bit better. Um, and so I learned those skills. They tell you to, you know, go to those meetings for a year and then move on and, and you don't need to come anymore. And so that's what I did. Um, but after those six months of, of abstinence, I kind of explored, like, I don't know that I really want to do that. Um, you know, one of the other things we talked about in prepping for this was that so much of the queer community, the gay community in particular, is associated with nightlife, with going out to the bars, with going out to drink or go to shows or go, go and do different gatherings where there's a lot of alcohol. And so much of the messaging, not just from community-based programs, but from treatment places as well, as well as, you know, some therapy groups was that you needed to disconnect from all of those spaces. You couldn't go anywhere where there could be alcohol. You shouldn't be interacting with people who were still using. And so as a queer person, I was really like, well, you're telling me to leave my whole community then um, yeah. and to not be able to go, you know, to these gathering spaces where, where other people go. And so it was really hard to balance out like this, these programs are clearly not designed in a cultural way that meets my needs. Uh, you know, my experiences are really not being heard or honored. And so I left. I didn't go back to those uh, recovery spaces. Um, and I still go out, you know, with friends or with, with uh, my boyfriend and we go and do different things. I still uh, drink to this day. I'll still go out and do different things. Um, and that has really worked for me to be able to balance, like, how do I continue to use these substances and go to these spaces that I want to be at and consider myself to have a, a life that has meaning and value, even though all of these other spaces that are were ostensibly recovery oriented and meant to support me consistently, even now, tell me the opposite, that I'm, I'm, I'm in denial or that I don't actually have a good grip on what's going on. So it's been really tricky for me as a queer person to try to navigate those spaces and it's what it's one of the main main reasons that I am not connected to the recovery community really at all in my personal life outside of work. Thanks for sharing that, Tim. Did you, in your experience with any of the twelve step or with the first six months in the twelve step program, did you find any connection with anyone who you felt was affirming of you and was hearing you? No, uh, I was really not. And I was in a place where I was, you know, engaging in abstinence uh, and mm -hmm. that was fine. You know, I wasn't really in a place where I was like, I don't want to do this to the point where I'm going to fight about it. So I was like, okay, if this is going to help them, you know, we'll do it. But I wasn't in a place where I was willing to take it on as a part of my identity. You know, in a lot of 12-step meetings, you, you have to introduce yourself as like, I'm Tim and I'm an alcoholic and that X, Y, Z. And I was not ready to do those things. Um, mm -hmm. and so it didn't really feel like even just at a base level, I was having the autonomy to share about myself, um, let alone as a queer person. And I, if I'm being really honest, I don't think that I even really talked about it. It just felt like such an unsafe space that I didn't, I was, I think just as queer people, you sort of know, have a little bit of extra intuition about like, when is it safe to really talk about this? And when is it safe, you know, when do you need to not talk about it? And my real, my gut was like, this is not a safe space to talk about these things. And so I really didn't pick it up. I hear that. 
Do, do you feel like you had more reception of that in the smart recovery space? Yes. Uh, but it was again linked to the fact that it, I feel like before you can even get to like, can I share if I'm queer or not? We had to get to this, like, can you see me as a whole person or not? And in smart, while it is also abstinence-based, they do kind of say like, this is really oriented to people who are wanting to find abstinence-based recovery. They are also very intentional, at least in the groups that I was in, they were very intentional to say like, however, if you're not there yet, you're still welcome in this space. And we can still recognize that you're working on things and you're making progress and doing that. And I didn't feel like I got that in clinical settings, not just because I don't want it to sound like I, I just like 12 stuff. It just didn't work for me. Uh, but in substance sure. space, they didn't get it. And I also didn't get that in clinical treatment settings or really from like therapy. Um, it was either you need to be abstinent all the time or, or like you can't be in this treatment program, you know? And so for SMART, it, they were like, well, even if you're still working towards it, you know, then you can still be here and we still validate you. And I was like, okay, you're validating this one piece, which leads to validation of another piece. And so I feel safer to talk about other things. Um, and so I think they were kind of linked together. That makes more sense. Yeah. Joanna, I, I don't want to completely jump to your story from Tim's, but I am curious if you have any questions for Tim's base. I know we've also done a whole episode about your recovery story, um, but wonder about intersecting pieces. Well, I mean, I had the exact opposite experience of Tim. So, I mean, I've been in recovery since 97 and 12 step rooms were a lot different. In fact, what Tim's saying actually makes me sad because there was no addiction treatment for someone like me. Um, and someone like me, I mean, I was middle class, but I also was ripping and running on the streets and came from a poor background. So Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, sorry that was not intentional um but 12 steps was really like that was the only option for me uh and for me my bottom was so low that i'd have tried anything um mm -hmm. and i certainly wasn't hiding it and also in 97 the world was very different i mean ellen DeGeneres didn't come out until i mean she came out a few months after I got, I, I entered recovery. And so, you know, I remember going to the Port and Storm in Baltimore, watching her come out on television with an entire bar full of women, you know, and gay men too. And just kind of like, oh my God, that was an amazing experience. And I was, you know, I was stone cold sober in the rooms of 12 steps. So it was very, very different. You know, um, we had, an entirely different scene as far as LGBT folk went. Um, you know, like, I mean, to draw another parallel, like the word queer, I don't identify with because that was a word that came before violence for me. Mm. You know, I have scars from a bottle that was thrown at my face. So, you know, and the words before it were, you know, let's play smear, smear the queer, you know, like that was normal. Um, that's, I mean, in some, some parts of our country, it's still normal. Uh, you know, Matthew Shepard had died, was murdered brutally three years before I got into recovery. So, you know, it was definitely one of those things that you just kept it close to the vest. 
Um, and also by the time I entered recovery, um, I couldn't give anything close to the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I entered the rooms, there was a very, you know, it was a very different perspective. You know, I found, I found security and comfort and family in a way that I hadn't had because I had been disowned by my parents and I was an atheist when I got to the rooms uh, and I, and I was a practicing agnostic until, well, I still practice agnosticism, you know? So I under, and I remember like walking into the rooms and, and hearing people talk about God and, you know, occasionally people would talk about Jesus, but people would pull them aside and, and tell them that's foolish and doesn't belong here. You know, um, and it's then that was consistent with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, so I was I came from a very different perspective. People walked me through the steps uh, when when it was time for me to to get a, a sponsor. It wasn't driven by a clinician or anything like that. It was driven by, hey, if you want to if you want what we have, then you'll do what we did. And you know, find and you know, here's a couple people that might, you know, you might want to talk to about being your guide. And no one ever told me that foolishness about men with men and women with women because that didn't apply to me. And everyone knew that didn't apply to me. Um, I had just as many problems with, you know, out other drugs and women as I did with alcohol. So, you know, I was actually told don't get a female sponsor. And you know, um, and I mean, it was, I was newly out and it was obvious because, I mean, I was, it, I was taking on the stereotype, not necessarily like, maybe that wasn't necessarily who I am, mm-hmm. but I was living into that because it was, it was part of the community at the time. And, um, and I want it to fit in. And, uh, you know, I mean, when you don't have a family, you do what you got to do to fit in. Um, mm-hmm. So it was kind of evident, I think, to most people. Or at least it was a question mark for most people. But also, I mean, I had behaviors that, you know, that people were like, you don't, you know, you don't need a female sponsor. And so I never had one. I've not had one. Um, and I don't feel any kind of way about it. I mean, like, I actually don't relate to women in the same way that they seem to relate to themselves. So I'm okay with that, too. <laughs> um, I, does that answer your question? Yeah. Um, I just know in prepping for this podcast, it, it's clear that Joanna and Tim have had very different experiences. So I'm, I'm curious about hearing more pieces that might parallel or intersect or, and where they don't, what does that look like? I'm wondering if either one of you have any insight or thoughts about why such the difference experience in 12 step. I mean, is it, is it a timing thing? Is it a just random like circumstantial group of people who are running each group or I don't know, was it a geography? 
a mix of probably all of those things. Like even just in hearing Joanna talk about her experiences, I can hear that like there was a lot more willingness to be in that space. And like, I was pretty clear when I was sharing earlier, like I was going because the, the treatment team and my family was like, you need to go to 12 steps. So I was like, fine, then I'll go. But I wasn't like, I want to be here. I'm ready for this. Let me engage with these people. I was coming in like, I will go and I will get a sponsor and I will do these steps and read this book because that's what people are telling me I have to do, not because I want to be here. And I do think that plays a big role in how willing you are to like open up to people and hear that stuff. Um, but I do, I mean, I don't know much about where Joanna grew up, but where I grew up was very, very conservative Christian. Um, and so that willingness to engage in specific talk about like God and religion and the Bible in those spaces was not surprising to me. It was things that I've been around my whole life. It was very, very common for where I lived. Um, and so it was, I mean, I, uh, I think that it sounds like from what I've heard from other people, that's not necessarily in alignment with how other 12 step groups operate or how they, how they, you know, how they talk about different things. And so I do think there are just a lot of different pieces. I think also for me, I had come out in high school when I was, I would have been 16 when I first came out. Um, so by the time I was in these 12 step spaces, it had been five or six years. Um, and I was very comfortable with, with, my sexuality and my gender identity and how I was expressing myself and how I was showing up in these spaces. And it was, and it still is now something that colors every decision that I make in every space that I'm in and every conversation I have. And so being in there, it wasn't just, you know, I'm here just to get to be here because I have to be here. I'm here also as a queer person. And that's very important to me. And I need, I want, that to be accepted here too in order for me to feel safe here i need to hear that um, and i wasn't hearing it explicitly um, and so for me that really made me struggle and that was enough of a barrier not just in 12 step but in a lot of other spaces where if there wasn't an explicit like we also are here to support queer people then i didn't really want to be there and i still feel that way to this day i'm, I'm really not interested in going places that are not really intentionally really visibly and not just visibly, but actually doing things to support queer communities. Um, there is a little bit of overlap though, you know, that to Joanna's point about the word queer, um, I didn't start using that word until probably about a year ago uh, for the mm -hmm. same reasons that I also heard, you know, let's play that game. Uh, it was also a word that I associated with violence um, and I really struggled with using it. Uh, and I have, and I'm not saying like everybody has to get to a place where they wanna reclaim that word. Um, but for me, I just did a lot of reading and speaking with other people in the community to learn more about it. And now I feel comfortable saying it. Um, but I think that there, there is, uh, we've just had different people in the community have had different experiences through different times. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate Joanna talking about Matthew Shepard and, and how even now there are large portions of this country where it, it, we're still not really safe. Um, there's this mm -hmm. idea that because we have all of, you know, a few additional rights like marriage equality and a few other things that everything has been resolved and that just isn't true. Um, and so then being expected to to go into these spaces, these recovery-oriented spaces or places that that say that we serve everyone, um, there's always that little bit of questioning, like, but are, do you really? And what does that really mean? Yeah. Yeah, I get yeah. that. And like, there's another overlap too in that um, I'm the eldest child of a Pentecostal preacher. I grew up conservative, Republican. It's a whole culture thing. And so to come out of the closet meant that I was disowned immediately. Um, I lost everything 
in order to be able to just say it. I was removed from the military under don't ask, don't tell. And I, you know, I, I, it was devastating in my life. And so when I found 12 steps, like a, I was, I was a hundred percent completely burned to the ground and I'm, now I'm the type of person and and after I got removed from all of those things and had all of those massive losses, I had this, you know, you couldn't tell me anything. I would fight you tooth and nail and to, you know, to what Tim said, I, I had willingness because my entire world was burned to the ground and alcohol was only compounding that. And so I would have done anything to, to stop suffering and to be able to self-actualize. Like I see myself as self-actualized. And so when I say that recovery is the foundation, that's the foundation I built my life on, I don't necessarily mean what I, what I believe what I'm saying is that it's the philosophy that philosophy of service and love and acceptance and tolerance, those were the things that I learned where, where I was being preached at those things at home. And that is not how I was treated. So I was very much on guard for uh, counter information and no one ever told me love and service tolerance. What they told me, what they did is they demonstrated it. So that was a big difference too. And, and, and I think that, I think like time, right? We talked about this when we prepared for this. Time is a big factor. I came out in 97, early 97. I was removed from the military in late 96. And I went home and couldn't tell anyone. And then but I was raised in the tri-state region of Maryland and Pennsylvania and, and West Virginia. And I, when I came out, I came out in Baltimore, which is where my family's from is Baltimore. And um, so it was like, we, I was living in the city and the city has a very different, all cities have very different reactions to, you know, to gay people and to people in recovery. So there was a lot more stigma for being an alcoholic than there was for being gay. And as long as you didn't discuss it and shove it in people, like like, I'm using air quotes, shove it in people's faces, they didn't really care. And so all of this newness of having spaces that people, you know, people, um, people are want to serve us and they're flying flags. Those things are new to me and they're not things I expect. So when people do that, I'm like, this is awesome. And when people make mistakes, I think I'm a little bit more lenient and and I'll say things like, Oh, Hey, I, I get your intention and it's not really nice. You might consider something else instead. And I think that's coming from that place of, we worked really hard to get here and I don't, it's, I don't take any of that for granted. I, 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 and 
And having said that, I'm a, I'm on the I'm the chair of the board of the Frederick Center, which is Maryland's second largest LGBT center. And so I get to interact with people that that were in their, you know, like were middle aged when Ellen came out. And then, of course, myself and, you know, people that were in my age group and then people in Tim's age group and much younger. And the things I learned from Tim and, and the people that are also much younger, I'm like, man, how amazing is that, that you have that experience because it allows me to see like, okay, yeah, there's still things that I'm doing that I get to heal from, you know, like the anxiety that I've carried around for a really long time. I just learned how to cope with it and listening to, you know, Tim and some of the other people that I've interacted with, I'm like, oh, wait, that is a remnant of homophobia and transphobia and all of these things that I get to let now bring out and share. And I find that I'm able to do that in the rooms of 12 step programs in a way that it sounds like Tim and a lot of other people are not. So I feel really grateful for that. Thanks, Joanna. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but just to pick up um, what you were saying about, you know, you, you know, the, the pride flags flying, or even I've seen window decals of saying proud allies and, you know, whether it's a store or restaurant, what have you. And for you, that's new, Tim, I'm curious how you interact with seeing those things. Is that something that you do find comfort in or I don't want to put words in your mouth or give you multiple choice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't, I don't, no, it was actually interesting because I was uh, driving back uh, just yesterday, what day is it, Tuesday, just a couple days ago, um, and we saw the pride flag flying at a rest stop uh, in like the state of Wisconsin, it was like right under the state of Wisconsin flag, and I kind of jokingly was like, oh, happy pride, like, ha ha, and the person I was with was like a little taken aback, you know, they were a couple years older than me, and we're like, wow, like, they just seem really stunned to see like state government flying that flag underneath our flag. And to me, I am very used to it. Um, certainly it wasn't easy when I came out, it would have been 2010. Um, but you know, that's 13 years later than Joanna. So theoretically there's 13 years of growth there. And then compared to someone who's coming out now, that's an additional 13 years from when I came out or 12. Um, so their experience is radically different than mine, but where, where I think, there might be a little difference is that when I see that flag uh, or when I see people like with the rainbow decal, it's actually, I want to link this a little bit back to pure work as well, just behavioral healthcare services. It's like mm-hmm. when, when you put that like proud ally or the rainbow flag up, it makes me think of too when people put up that like trauma informed care decal in their window. And I'm like, okay, but what are you doing? Have you just gone to a training or are you actually providing culturally informed services? You know, if you have that flag in your window or it's a restaurant or it's a you know, government building or wherever it might be. I don't see that and automatically think you actually support queer people. You actually support me. I think, what are you doing? Are, is this performative? Have you actually made changes? You know, we see that with like state governments that are rolling back all sorts of rights, but then want to say like, we celebrate pride or with a lot of different corporations that want to put the rainbow logo on there. Uh, their corporation for the the month of June, but are donating to you know anti-gay politicians. I'm like, you are lying to me. Um, and so for me, that's usually what I think is that I'm like, so what? So you're flying this flag, okay? What else? 
you've done the bare, 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 bare bones of minimum. What are you actually doing to support us as a community? Um, and so there is, I think, a little bit of a difference there. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head, Tim, and, and Joanna, you kind of said this too. It's just with any cultural shift, it, it does. It just takes that large investment of time. And I know for a lot of us on the forefront of that, we're like, okay, hurry up, catch up, come on. But yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I, I also, whenever I think about any like cultural or social change I do, it's like, I think the, the, if we look at it as a spectrum of like perspectives, it's like you have the ultra progressive who are like pushing, fighting forward and then, and not to box people in, but just roll with me a little bit. Um, and then the conservatives or traditionalists who are like, well, hold on, like that's a little radical, maybe not. And then I think most people in the middle are like, why, why is this so, why is this dramatic? Why do we need to have such fighting? But time and time again, I, whatever the issue is, whatever the field is, it's like, well, change isn't going to happen if we're not loud and looking forward. And, and so I think it does take that. Come on, let's keep moving. <laughs> I don't know. That was maybe a bit of a rabbit hole, but I, I often think about that whenever we're having these kinds of conversations. Well, and if I could just jump in, I think that what, I, I mean, I take a long view of most things. And so what experience has taught me is that everyone changes. And if we don't give people the ability to change, in, then, then we're actually causing more damage. So I say that because I changed. You know, like I'm no longer the person I, I still have that person as part of me. Right. But I no longer act on those behaviors or feel those same feelings that I did when I was 20 and in a recovery. And I mean, my parents, both of my parents uh, came to this place where they were able to change their perspective because they realized that I wasn't doing anything evil or sinful or any of that they were able to you know realize like I'm still the loving caring person that they raised me to be I just don't buy into the dogma and I don't um and you know I don't even you know like I don't act in in ways that that I that I choose not to right and and I think that that's the way changes. As long as we, as as long as we give, we keep the space open, right? And I mean, to to what Tim was saying, like I want to know what you're doing when you put that flag up, because I would rather you outwardly not you not put that flag up if you don't really mean it, and you're not going to do anything. And even further than that. I find comfort in knowing exactly who you are. So if you say you don't like gay people and you're not nice about it, then that's okay. That gives me information. I don't have to interact with you and you don't have to interact with me and we don't have to troll each other. Because the way that my, you know, like I, I, I have this perspective 
I think this is something else that we have in common is like, I want to live a self-directed life and I want to choose for myself and I want to be able to think for myself and I want to live as healthy as I can possibly live. So I enjoy my life and I enjoy, you know, and for me, I want to contribute. Right. And that's what I hear Tim saying too. And so I don't want to troll you if you're doing stupid, what I perceive as stupid stuff, because that's just, you know, that's what you want to do. I don't need to be a part of that. And knowing that helps me to, to be able to stay in that lane. And it also helps me to be able to give it perspective. So I'm not taking things personally that I don't need to take personally because they have nothing to do with me. They're about you. They're about that person. And then that helps me with my mental health too. Yeah, I appreciate that perspective. This is kind of a side note, but on but on this topic, did last year this made me cringe, but did any of you see what Skittles did for Pride Month last year? They produce I don't know how long they did it, but all their production bags were completely white. And like on the bottom of the package, it said there's only one rainbow that matters right now. And it, I don't, <laughs> it just, it totally, did, it creeped me out. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I kind of do. Yeah, that definitely, that's <laughs> odd. Um, I, I guess it's a question for both of you guys. Like when you guys are seeing these organizations who are, you know, or restaurants, companies that are waving the flag, how, what kind of questions or research do you guys do to see like, you know, what are you actually doing for this community? Like, how do you guys, I mean, Tim, I know you touched on a little bit, but a little bit deeper, how do you guys decipher if they're actually doing any good or if they actually have any meaningful intent? behind doing these things? I think that we're gonna start at like 10,000 feet and then bring it in. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start with like my <laughs> ultimate philosophy, which is that no corporation that exists can ever do anything good. I think all corporations are soulless and contribute to capitalism, which I don't support. So getting that out of the way, because I don't want anyone to think that I'm like, these corporations are doing good things because I don't think they are. So kind of just, I wanna put that out there and name that. And so then beyond that, like keeping that in mind, um, it's, I have, I'm like, how do I articulate this? I feel like the, the community just knows, like, it's hard to put it into words of like, within the community, you just, when you're wanting something, when you're like, I want to go to like this, uh, like this hospital group, you reach out to the community to be like, Hey, have you gotten, have you gone to doctors there? And have you had good experiences? Are they queer friendly? Do they understand? You know, will they treat you right? Um, you know, when I go to this store or to this group or to this organization, we ask each other. And so I guess it's a little bit less about like concrete, like data driven, where is your money going as much as I'm like, are the people that work here treating the other people in the community that I really care and value about value with kindness and compassion. And that does not take the place of them donating to you know, politicians who are stripping away the rights of trans youth and, and us as human beings. However, it does play a role in making decisions about where I go because I can't go nowhere, uh, right? There's no way to be like, well, I'm just not going to interact with any corporation at all. Uh, that's not realistic. So then it's how do I, you know, kind of taking a harm reduction approach of like, well, then 
how do I engage with the least harmful ones or the ones that are treating the people that I care about in this community with as much kindness and compassion as a corporation can? Um, and, and I think for me, what's really important as well is exploring where does behavioral health care funding go? You know, is it going to these groups that are saying we're going to provide peer support services, but it's all based in, uh, uh, you know, uh, values or ideas that don't support queer people or gender affirming care? Or, you know, we're, we're giving state or, or public funding to these hospital groups that don't support abortion because they are funded by a specific religion. And how does that intersect with my value of bodily autonomy and connecting it to the rights of trans people to make decisions about their own body, my right to make my decisions about my own body. And so that is a little bit where I zero in on more is like if you're taking public funding that could be going to actually exceptional groups, what are you doing with it? And if you're going to show up, like to Joanna's point, I do agree that I'm not going to go out of my way to intentionally troll anyone. However, if you're showing up in behavioral health care spaces being like, we serve everybody, but you actually don't. I am going to come for you and I am going to name that and I am going to advocate that you lose your funding because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing and you're not providing services that are equitable or accessible to everyone. Um, and I think that's a really important piece of this is like corporations play a big role in, in donating money doing different things, but it also shows up in the nonprofit industrial complex in a lot of really insidious ways. Um, and so for me, a large piece of like accountability is, is also at work in the professional space of like, who am I partnering with? How are they using their funds? What are they actually doing? You know, are they just rainbow washing their logo for the month, but then the other 11 months they do nothing to talk about like, how do you support uh, queer communities and provide services? Um, so it shows up, I think in both spaces, but for me, it's really a harm reduction approach of like, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. So how do we do it, you know, without causing the least amount of harm as possible? I definitely appreciate that response. It's, it's just always, I guess I don't know how to phrase it. It's it I as a person not within that community, it's always a question to me because I mean, yeah, you see, especially in June, you see people with these flags and everything like that. And it it is always something I think about. It's like, are you doing that to drive people in there? Are you doing that just to be fun and festive? Or are you doing that to actually support these people that this flag represents? So thank you for your insight. Joanna, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> again, this is something else that Tim and I, like, we see, we have different viewpoints of. Um, I don't think that all corporations are, I don't think capitalism by its very nature is bad. I think capitalism, when it doesn't have boundaries and guardrails, is terrifying. Um, and so, I, I recognize that there are organizations like B corporations that are doing fantastic work and that continue to do fantastic work. And so like, I'm going to give them my, I'm going to give them my money willingly all day long. And, um, and I'm with Tim, like I take a harm reduction approach. And if you're taking federal money and you're saying that you see everyone, but you don't like, I'm going to call truth to that, right. Truth to power, because that's very different in my, in my perspective than trolling, right? Like, um, and I think about it from this perspective too, that if as peers, we meet people where they are. And that also means with the LGBT community. So there's a lot of us that are not out of the closet because it's not safe to be fully out of the closet. So when I see people virtue signaling and they put their 
pronouns and everything and then they force people to give their pronouns like you're probably not getting my business because that is coercion and that's not meeting people where they are and that's not even being considered the lgbt community right when i see stories in the news about like rebel wilson you know like she came out of the closet because she was forced to like that was a company that made that decision to force somebody out of the closet who knows if she was ready or, or willing or any of those things, but that is not, that's not in the public good and that's not in the good, the LGBT community. And that's not, that's not even good for anybody's mental well-being, right? So I look at things like that, like that is not what, that's not what the call to come out of the closet was for Hardy Milk. That's not what the potential of being one able, one day able to, you know, be inclusive and say, hey, I'd like you to get to know me. My favorite color is blue. And I like that girl that you saw me sitting next to. Right. Like <laughs> that is that may be like where we go, which would be amazing to be there. And if we force people to do things they're not ready for or we do performative things and we can't tell the, you know, like you, you, people don't know that the reason that pride is the reason that pride is in June is because is because um, of the Stonewall uprisings. If you don't know that, then you really don't know why you're celebrating pride and you're waving a bunch of flags for no good reason. Um, and so like I pay attention to those types of things. So there's definitely some due diligence that happens with that. I wanted to just throw out one other thing. Sorry, I, I know we probably need to move on, but I also think that there, there, there needs to be greater accountability for us as a community by us as a community. Um, you know, there's, there, I don't think anyone actually thinks this, but it can oftentimes feel like, well, we're all queer, so we all share the same set of values, and so we're all going to be able to work together. And that's obviously not true. <laughs> Um, and so there are, you know, different groups working in opposition to different groups within the queer community. And mm -hmm. when I think about, you know, as Joanna was talking, I was still thinking about um, different behavioral health care services. But there are just there are some queer run organizations or organizations that say that they're advocating for the rights of queer people who still have crisis lines that will call law enforcement on you without your consent that use geo tracking that do and participate in those extremely dangerous practices. And to me, this could be a great resource with some informed consent, with a lot of work and retooling it. But to do that and then turn around and say, we're supporting queer communities when we know that queer folks, especially those people who are black, indigenous people of color, are at higher risk of being murdered by the police, particularly when in a mental or emotional distress, that is not effectively serving queer communities. And so when I think about like, who's designing queer programs, who's doing a great job doing that within the behavioral healthcare system and in peer work. Like if you're talking about doing a, a CPS or a, a peer certification program that is for working with queer communities, are you having queer communities design that certification program? You know, as we're looking at the rollout of 988 and other warm lines, are you working with groups like Peer Pride, which are centered in queerness, queer community that are specifically designed to consult on warm line and crisis line work by and for queer people. Like, where is the money going? And is it going to this community? Or is it going to the same group of people over and over who claim that they are culturally informed enough to do this, but actually aren't? Um, and so I think within like peer work, 
that's something that I would like to see as well, greater accountability for who's designing these programs for queer people. Where is that funding going? And how did, you know, do we have a seat at the table or not? Thanks for bringing that right up. Right on. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so huge. And I, I mean, no, this isn't directly related, but one of the things I'm finding recently is like resources for Spanish, for the Spanish speaking community. Like we have so many um, people reaching out to us saying, hey, your stuff is great. Your resources are great, but I serve a primarily Spanish speaking population. And do you have Spanish speaking tools, focus tools? And I, I have to say, here's this one thing I have, or here's here are these two things I have compared to this entire library that's entirely in English. And that doesn't feel good. Well, and, you know, to the harm reduction approach, right? Like there is that that's an indicator that there's work to do. And so mm -hmm. when we know that there's an indicator that there's work to do, well, what can we do to, to improve that? And mm -hmm. who do we need to invite to the table to help us to do that? Because I mean, that's the, that's the ultimate thing, right? Is if you're going to get, if you're going to rainbow wash, right? If you're going to trans wash or gay wash or how what it, however whatever flag you're flying, right, and whatever group you say that you serve, if you're going to do that, then when someone tells you, "Ouch, this hurts," and they're from that community, you need to listen. And when someone says, "Hey, I really want this service, need this service," and you don't have it then you need to listen and you need to do something to rectify that situation. So, so I like hearing things like, yeah, that makes me feel bad because I only have one thing I can give you. Great. That's information. Now what are we going to do about it? Mm -hmm. yeah. And it makes me think of Shannon, kind of the, one of the other questions that's on here about like what strengths do members of the community bring to recovery spaces and how can people tap into it? And I think it really links back to what you said at the beginning, that experience does equal expertise. Like you have to trust the queer community that we know what's best for us, that we have these things that are designed for us already. And it's one of the reasons that I really struggle with these ideas of like, we can't move forward on anything until we've done enough research and data and we have an evidence-based practice in place. And I'm like, but I can see value in those things. And we're ready to go now with solutions. You know, I, I know people who have like whole programs ready to go, but they're stuck because it's not technically an evidence-based practice or they're not a PhD level academic person who like got to do a whole research study on it. And so when I think about this, I initially actually didn't want to answer it because I was like, maybe you should stop exploiting us as a community and taking our ideas. But what I think really should happen <laughs> is that like, just listen to us and trust us and give us the funding to, to do what we know how to do already and trust that we will do it and do it well in a way that works for this community. Um, and that I think is what, what I, I just have really been like, I feel like that's what I'm really hearing in this, in this conversation. Yeah. I'm right there with you. And, and to like, it's nice to have allies, but don't make me walk through the door with an ally who doesn't know what I'm doing. If the only reason that ally is there is because they're the one that has the keys to the door and otherwise I wouldn't have access. Like, take a look at that and ask yourself, like how many different LGBT partners do we have or peer partners, right? Like not even LGBT, but like just 
minority-based partners do you have that didn't come through the door with someone who was a majority? And, and I think that looking at that and being willing to be honest about that is, would change everything. It would make it possible for us to be able to actually take care of our communities without needing a chaperone. Yeah, totally agree. And, and Tim, back to your point about so many of the groups with the resources to build capacity and to allow for so many of these newer programs that would, that are culturally relevant to be ran and to be shared. It's like, how, okay, how do you want me to prove evidence if I, I can't get this out the door, if I'm stuck right here? And it's, it's just like this, yeah, insidious catch-22. Yes, and this, I know this is a totally different podcast topic, so I won't take us down the road, but the real question for me also is like, does it have to have an evidence base for it to have value? Not to me, but we won't go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> trying to <laughs> well most of the time like we we test a theory like even scientific method right like scientific yeah. method is I have an idea let me test it and then if it works then it's like oh yeah there's evidence that it works but if we have to leave with evidence first we never get to testing like we never actually get to real to science Right. Well, I mean, that's exactly where the field of peer services is at right now. It's like any of the research coming out is like, oh, yeah, we noticed that this was working. So we actually try to do some studies and it does indeed work. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> well, we are at the top of the hour. Thanks for spending extra time with me. Um for those listening, if there's nothing else they gain from this conversation, what's one thing from each of you you'd want them to take? I would say that for me, it's, it's that even though we spent this talking about, you know, what was our experience as queer people showing up in recovery spaces and it's June and it's Pride Month and that's primarily focused on the queer community. Nobody has one identity. Um, you know, so for me, my experiences were also colored by being cisgender, by being Latino, by being adopted, by coming from an upper middle class family. All of those things also play roles in how I show, and they also play roles in how I feel that the queer community should show up. You know, I think that there's a lot of room for growth in how we're engaging with other activist spaces like Black Lives Matter, like uh, bodily autonomy rights. You know, uh, all of those things intersect. It's not just there's only queer rights and then there's only rights for Black people. Every thing intersects together, right? That's Kimberly Crenshaw intersectionality. And so I think really important in a lot of these months is to remember that you're not just talking to me as a queer person. I'm never just a queer person in this space and a queer person who's Latino and adopted and, and Midwestern and all these other things. And so just really keeping that in mind that you're never designing for just queer people. It's, it's queer and, and what else? I like that. At some point I'm going to capture everyone's one thing they want to take and publish a book. That's awesome. I, I'm, I'm with Tim, like there's so much intersectionality and just because something looks like something on the outside doesn't mean that's actually what it is on the inside. Um, mm -hmm. I think the thing for me is that, you know, no matter where you are in the journey, just know that until your journey ends and like you take your last breath, 
the journey's not over. So if you're in a place where it feels you, you, you are in despair, keep going, it will get better. You know, and if you're in a place where you're like at the top of the mountain, keep going because you're going to come to a valley and the skills that you learn at the top, at the peaks and in the valleys, that's that's the thing that will keep you in recovery um, doing, you know, doing the deal for the long haul. So well, thank you both for sharing your stories, your experiences, your valleys, <laughs> all good stuff and all not all good stuff, but all relevant and valuable. Awesome. Thank you very much for having us and doing this. Thank you for connecting with us listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org. That's peerrecoverynow.org or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsed by the U.S. government. Thank you for letting me join you all as this is my last episode with the PRCOE. With that being said, this is Marissa signing off. Thank you. Thank you.